Welcome to this talk from Emmaus Road, a church with congregations in Guildford, Woking and Aldershot in the UK. To find out more about who we are and what we're up to, please visit us online at EmmausRoad.com. Well, today, like Pete said, we are carrying on our Rebel Jesus series. And over the next three weeks, what we're going to do is we're going to follow Jesus through his temptations in the wilderness. We're going to look at how Jesus defied some of the gods of his age in the wilderness and how those same gods, small g, rear their ugly heads today. And as followers of Jesus, just like he did in the wilderness, we too are called to rebel and stand up against them. And so I was pleased this morning, because it's going to be a slightly heavy talk, when I looked out the window and saw that it was sunny, because I had a friend who said, happy people are solar-powered. They always come out with the sun. So I think that's true. So hopefully that will take some of the edges off the talk this morning, and you'll be able to go into the sunshine after. But this is an important talk. It's an important series and we are going to be looking first of all at the theme of fasting. But before we get there, why don't you turn your Bibles to Matthew 4. We will be reading the whole passage over the next three weeks of Jesus as he walks through the wilderness to be tested by the evil one. And so it goes like this, it will come up on the screen. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After fasting for 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. The tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the Son of God, he said, throw yourself down. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and they will lift you up in their hands, so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered him, it is also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All of this I will give you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. Jesus said to him, away from me, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him and angels came and attended him. So here we have this important moment in Jesus' ministry and Jesus is fasting. He's fasting for 40 days and 40 nights. Now fasting, if you're not used to that word, is when you go without food for an amount of time. And throughout church history, fasting, as in going without food, has been an important part of Christian history. Now, we're going to be focusing on food a little bit this morning, but I am aware that there are a lot of important and legitimate reasons that some people can't fast food. So as we talk about that, and we'll talk a little bit about it later, but this can apply to all sorts of different things in life. You can fast you know, TV, you can fast shopping, you can fast alcohol. All of those things are important. But throughout history, there has been something unique about food. Christians have a long history of fasting. In fact, for most of church history, Christians fasted food twice a week, from sunup 
to sundown. They did it on a Wednesday and on a Friday every week in line with when Jesus was betrayed on the Wednesday and when he died on the Friday. Think about that. For most of the last 2,000 years, people who followed Jesus have fasted twice a week, every week. As I was studying this, I came across a quote from John Wesley, the famous revivalist who also founded the Methodist denomination, and he says this, and get ready, this is probably the most challenging part of today's talk. So we're going to start at that point, and then we'll get a bit more comfortable as we go. So prepare yourself for this, okay? Not me, this is John Wesley. I fear there are now thousands of Methodists, so-called, both in England and Ireland, who, following the same bad example, have entirely left off fasting, (laughs) who are so far from fasting twice a week that they do not fast twice in a month. You know who you are, (laughs) right? The man who never fasts, this is him, is no closer to heaven than the man who never prays. It's challenging words from John Wesley. And I'm not trying to say that John Wesley is right, although never quote me in saying that John Wesley is wrong. But I am struck by the fact that Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, only ever talks about three spiritual disciplines, one of which is fasting. And when he talks about it in Matthew 6, he doesn't start with, if you fast. He doesn't even encourage you to fast. He starts with, when you fast. To Jesus, there was an assumption that to follow Jesus was to fast. For John Wesley, there was an assumption that to follow Jesus was to fast. And we can get into the fine talk of how much and how often, but I do think it's interesting that in a relatively short space of time, we have so far moved fasting one of, from one of the spiritual disciplines that we don't even talk about it as essential. In fact, we rarely talk about it. We've moved it entirely into the optional category. Now, why? Why is that? Well, I think fasting has gone out of fashion largely for two reasons. One, as probably a helpful reaction to some of the unhelpful and excessive forms of asceticism in the Middle Ages. You know, if you study these guys, sometimes their fasting sort of bordered on self-mortification. And it's good that there's been a reaction against that. But maybe more recently, and more importantly for us... Thanks. There we go. More recently, there has been a cultural obsession with pleasure and the constant advertising that convinces us that the highest virtue is to satisfy the human appetite in all of its forms, of which food is obviously a major one. We live in a time that opposes fasting in profound ways. And we will come back to that a little bit later, but for now, it is interesting if you study the Bible that fasting turns up time and time again. A quick survey of scripture shows us that Moses, David, Elijah, Esther, Daniel, Anna, Paul, and even of course Jesus are recorded to fast for significant, amount, for significant amounts of time. It is noteworthy that fasting turns up on the CV of almost every spiritual giant in the Bible. And yet we rarely talk about it. 
And so let me just ask the question, what is fasting and what is fasting not? And then let's see whether or not we could be encouraged to fast again this Lent. So let's start with what fasting is not. Fasting is not a form of penance to try and twist God's arm or convince him to do something. You would be right to react to that idea based on everything that we know about God. You have to approach fasting in line with the revelation of a loving God. And yet I think that's one of the reasons that many people react to fasting. It can kind of feel a bit like this hurting yourself as a form of divine manipulation, which of course it is not that. And so if it's not that, if we can exclude that, Why does God encourage us to fast? Why do we find fasting in the CV of all of these incredible men and women of faith through the Bible and throughout church history? Well, I think that fasting does two things. First of all, it makes you hungry. Obviously, it doesn't get much more complicated than that. It makes you hungry, and then it makes you holy. It makes you hungry, and then it makes you holy. And so let's start with hungry? How does fasting make you hungry? Well, we live in a culture and a worldview that is fundamentally shaped by the Enlightenment, which basically elevates the mind above every other part of the person. One of its forethinkers, Thomas Edison, said this, the chief function of the body is to carry the mind. This belief that the mind is elevated above everything and the body gets relegated right down. And so this mindset gets into us. And so when we approach everything as people in this worldview, we so often approach it from the idea of how do we think about it? How do we understand it intellectually? How do we wrap our minds around it? So we come to something like fasting or prayer and we want to understand it. We want to get a book about it or Google it or, or whatever it is to kind of wrap our heads around the idea. And yet the biblical worldview of the person is far more integrated than that. We are mind and body and soul and emotions. And into that, fasting is choosing to pray with your body instead of just your mind. It is choosing to bring your whole body in all aspects of it in line with God. Scott McKnight the theologian says that fasting is body talk. It's when your body prays to God. And in Jeremiah 29, 13, it says, you will seek me when you seek me with all of your heart. You will seek me and you will find me when you seek me with all of your heart. Did you notice the contingency there? God is looking for whole-hearted, whole-body pursuit. There's this famous story of Duncan Campbell during the Hebridean revival. In 1949, in a little rural church of mostly elderly people, a series of prayer meetings catalyzed what would later become known as the Hebridean revival. There was a level of the Spirit's outpouring of power that the Western hadn't, that the West probably hadn't seen before and probably haven't seen since. There are stories of people 
going towards prayer meetings and three quarters of the people being saved and repenting of their sins before they even get to the meeting. There's stories of workmen kneeling in the mud at the side of the road, repenting of their sins and wanting to get right with God. There's stories of housewives waking in the night with an overwhelming burden of needing to get right with God. There's stories of young people leaving parties and travelling in buses to surrender their lives to Jesus. This great outpouring of the Spirit. And right at the centre of this revival, there was a famous preacher called Duncan Campbell. And he'd go around the churches and he'd pray and he'd see people saved. And as he was travelling around, he heard about this little boy called Donald. Now Donald was a 15-year-old who knew how to pray. And when Donald would pray, they'd say that huge breakthroughs would happen, huge outpourings of the Spirit would happen. So Duncan Campbell, at a time when he couldn't seem to get a breakthrough, thought, I need to go and find this 15-year-old boy. Is there any 15-year-olds still in the room? No. We'll tell them after. Duncan Campbell went to see this 15-year-old boy, and he knocks on the boy's, um, the boy's house and Donald is out praying in the barn where he often did. And Donald's mum goes to the door. And it's, it's Duncan Campbell, right? This is the most famous man in all the land. The person that everyone wants to know. The person that's going round and facilitating all of these prayer meetings. And he goes to the door and Duncan Campbell says to Donald's mum, Can I speak to your son? Donald is out. He's praying in the barn. And so Donald's mum goes out. She knocks on the door and she says, Donald, Duncan Campbell is here to see you. The most famous man in all the land is here to see you. And Donald looks up while he's on his knees in prayer and he looks at his mum and he says this, please tell Mr. Campbell that he will have to wait because I'm having an audience with the king. Stunning, right? There is something something about a hunger for God which says no to everything else. There is something about the power of a no. The famous business consultant Patrick Lencioni says, if you value everything, you really value nothing. What is the power of your no? When the Lord is calling for you to have an audience with the king, there is a power about saying no to other things that want to take your attention and want to take your affection. What I love about fasting, it is a way to act following a value that you have. So often what we want to do is we want our feelings to determine how we should act. So we can, as Pete says, clench our buttocks and we can pray hard and just try and get hungry for God. But what fasting allows us to do is even if we don't feel hungry for God, we choose to say no to something as a bigger yes to Jesus. We choose to say no to food. We choose to feel the pain of being hungry. And in that pain, we say, God, there is something that I am more hungry for than food. I am hungry for you. And as we do that, something powerful happens. Because ultimately, our feelings follow our actions. If you act hungry for God, it's amazing that very soon you'll feel hungry for God. I felt challenged by this and started trying to fast. Just from sun up 
sun up to sundown once a week at about the middle of last year. And um, I'd heard someone like I started a few, uh, many years ago who'd said, you know, there's lots of legitimate reasons why fasting food isn't right for some people. And I'd convinced myself that a high metabolism was one of those reasons. <laughs> Turns out it's not. Um, and actually, it's okay to feel hungry. And so I felt challenged. I'm going to be honest, like, I hated it. Every week, I didn't look forward to that day. Like, it just was like, oh, like, wake up, try and get something in before the sun came up, and then I'd sit down and have dinner with my family at, like, half five when the sun went down or whatever it was. Um, but what I did notice, although I didn't look forward to the day, I noticed that a hunger... After weeks and months of doing it, there was a hunger that I felt for prayer in those moments. In amongst all of the pain of suffering hunger when I couldn't have lunch and everyone else was having lunch, I looked forward to praying in those moments because there is something about hunger for prayer that begins to develop if you act in a certain way that says, I'm hungry for God above everything else. It's interesting that if you study the scriptures, just like with Donald, there's a moment when the disciples come to Jesus and they aren't able to cast out a demon. And they're surprised by this, which suggests that, of course, they usually are quite good at casting out demons. But for some reason, this one they're not able to do. And Jesus says, this type only comes out through prayer and fasting. We don't talk about it very much, but the Bible is clear that there is a correlation between our holiness, the purity of our pursuit of the presence of God, and the power of God that is manifested in our lives. Prayer and fasting is a way that we lay hold of God, and it does seem to amplify the power of our prayers. I was challenged recently by being with Pastor Agu, who leads Jesus' house one of the large Nigerian churches in London. And these guys are just so much better than we are at fasting. And he was in the middle of a 21-day fast, and he was talking about how he has two passions in life. One is food, and one is fasting. And the only thing that mirrors his love of food is his hate of fasting. And yet, he was in the middle of a 21-day fast, and he would often fast for a week before he preached, or a few days before he preached. And he said something that really struck with me. Struck me. He said, I wonder what would happen when the Church of Jesus Christ in the West finally started fasting to show God that we are willing to curb our appetite to follow him. It's challenging. I wonder what would happen if the church in the West finally started doing that. So first thing, fasting makes us hungry. And then secondly, fasting makes us holy. So how does it make us holy? Well, obviously, food isn't an inherently evil desire. Like, food is brilliant and great and a gift of God, one that we are meant to enjoy, and Jesus enjoyed food. And so why is giving up food something that makes us holy? Well, I think because of how good it is and the power that it has over the body, the appetite of food is one of the strongest drivers we experience. And therefore, saying no to it for a season, for a time, has a unique ability to train our muscles in mastering our appetites. No one ever ambles into holiness. Have you noticed that? 
You don't stumble into holiness. You train yourself into holiness. That's what Paul talks about. He talks about training ourselves in holiness. And human beings are worshipping creatures. We are created in a way that whether we're theists or atheists, we are all destined to worship something. The question is not if we will worship, but what will we worship? And if worship is the thing that directs your attention and demands your affection, then it's easy to see how unbridled appetites replace the source of God in our lives. St. Paul in Philippians 3 literally talks about people whose bellies have become their gods. I think it's coming up on the screen. But he says it like this. Their destiny is destruction. Their God is their stomach. And their glory is in their shame. Their mind is set on earthly things. There's something about fasting that sets our mind on heavenly things. Roger Forster, in his brilliant book, The Celebration of Discipline, puts it like this. He says that our desires and our cravings are like rivers which easily overflow their banks and fasting keeps them in their channels. It is noteworthy and well documented through Christian writing that the two most important places of spiritual warfare and temptation in the Bible involve food. Have you noticed that? In the Garden of Eden and then in the passage that we've just read where Jesus is in the wilderness, both times spiritual warfare revolves around food. Now that isn't arbitrary. There is something about food that is powerful over a human being. And it isn't insignificant or random that Jesus' response to the devil's temptation to fill his belly was to counter that God's voice was a superior source of life. Prayer was a superior source of life for Jesus. It is in the middle of a 40-day fast of starving the flesh to feed the spirit that Jesus is able to overcome temptation, to quiet the cry of his appetite, and to know, like truly know, that real living requires a life source far beyond the physical things that nourish our body. And it's in this way, if we could develop a regular practice of fasting, a regular practice of saying no to our body, to say a bigger yes to Jesus, that it's a powerful way that we can step into different and new realms of holiness. I think a great description of self-control is this. Self-control is saying no to what you want now to say yes to what you want most. Saying no to what you want now to say yes to what you want most. Thomas Akempis, in his stunning book, The Imitation of Christ, one of the most important books on spiritual discipline that's been written in the last 2,000 years. In the middle of that, when he's talking about fasting, he says, restrain from gluttony and thou shalt more easily restrain from all inclinations of the flesh. There is something about learning to say no to food that gives us the power to say no to all sorts of other things in our life. All the way through the Bible, the flesh is talked about as this kind of word that brings up that carnal, animal part of a human with its disordered desires. And just like all things, if you feed them, they grow. 
if you starve them, they die. And so what Thomas Akempis is saying is, hey, if you learn how for a season to starve your flesh, literally to starve your stomach, what you'll find is that you will develop muscles that will give you the ability to say no to all sorts of other things from your fleshly nature. All sorts of other things that are your addictions or your vices or your disordered desires that you know squash out your spiritual life. And this isn't talking about holiness like a status. We know that one of the things that we remember in Lent is that holiness is something that Jesus achieves on the cross. It's a status that is given to us through no work of our own. Through the atoning work of Jesus, it is granted to us as a free gift and we step into holiness. But the Bible also talks about the stuff that wants to squash out the true flourishing, the true life that God has offered to us. Those disordered desires that the language Augustine turn us in on ourselves. And the invitation of Jesus is to leave those behind and step into the full life that heaven has given to us. Well, the Bible is clear that one of the powerful ways we do that is through fasting. We train ourselves through fasting. I believe that there are some people here that there is something that you know has got hold of your life. And maybe you've been praying and praying about how to break it. I want to encourage you. Start small. Start with maybe just one day. Miss a meal. Do the sun up to sundown thing once a week. Train yourself to say no to your appetites. And I think that what you're going to find is you're going to develop muscles which help you to say no to all sorts of other things that you're struggling to say no to right now. There is a power in fasting. And so, as Jason said last week, fasting is a form of rebellion against the powers that try to keep us in bondage. Or as John Mark Homer slightly more gently puts it, the spirit is always zigging when the culture is zagging. (laughs) Jason took the words out of the Bible. John Mark Homer just made his up. So, you know, but it's true, right? And so we live in a time like one of the gods, small g of the age, is the god of comfort and the god of sensuality and indulgence of the body. And so when you're living through that sort of culture, when the culture is zigging, the spirit's going to be zagging. So the, cult, the spirit's going to be welcoming us and encouraging us into a life of sacrifice, into a, love of, uh, into a life of other peopled love. I saw a sticker on a bag this past week which said self-love is the best form of love I thought no it's not but that's the, the culture zigging right and so how do I zag with the spirit how do I zag with the spirit how do I step away from believing that the idolatry of self like self-love is the best kind of love I just find intentional practical ways to say no to self I fast. I say, God, I'm going to say yes to you above everyone else. I'm going to say yes to loving other people. And for a time and a season, I'm going to say no to me. And then finally, the other way that fasting makes us holy is that in the book of Isaiah, Isaiah teaches us to fast in solidarity with the poor. It's going to come up on the screen. This is in Isaiah 58. It's a famous passage. It says, is, this, is not this the kind of fasting I've chosen? To loose the chains of injustice and untie the cords of the yoke, to set the oppressed free and break every yoke? 
Is it not to share your food with the hungry and to provide the poor wanderer with shelter? When you see the naked, to clothe them and to turn away from your own flesh and blood. Now what Isaiah is doing here is he's prophetically critiquing a community that has a very self-centered faith. They're focusing a lot on themselves and he's saying, hey, at the expense of, um, that you focused on personal spirituality at the expense of godly community. And he redefines the fast as an act of solidarity with those that are suffering injustice. And so in this way, we too can choose to allow our bodies to feel the affliction that our brothers and sisters around the world feel who are forced into this state of hunger. And as we literally feel the pain of their injustice and suffering, we can stand alongside them and stand with them. And so throughout Christian history, there's been a tradition of people who would fast and they take the money that they would have used on food and they'd give it to the poor. And they would stand in solidarity with the poor, saying, I too am going to feel hungry and I'm going to give the money that I use and I'm going to give it that you might eat while I suffer hunger. Growing up um, for lots of years when I was a boy, my parents used to make us have what they called horribly rice Thursdays, where basically they would take the money that they would spend and we would just eat rice on a Thursday. It was awful, and I hated it as a child. It was like just literally a bowl of white in front of you. But they take the money, and as I grew up, I began to realize what they do is they take the money that they would have spent on meat and everything else, and they give it to the poor. And there's something about the power of stepping in and standing, not as a savior coming above, but standing alongside, suffering the same pain they feel, and giving, and stepping in line with what Isaiah calls this new kind of fasting. And so how do we respond to this? How do we, as Jason said last week, prepare ourselves through Lent to disarm the principalities and the powers? Well, I want to encourage you to try fasting, maybe just once. I looked it up, and apparently today the sun came up at five past seven, and the sun will go down at 22 minutes past five. And so using that as a rough guide, I want to encourage you one day this week why don't you try fasting? If you've got questions about it, John Mark Homer's Practicing the Way is a free resource and it's got tons of like, what if and how about this and how should I do it with my family? And if you want to try this, I encourage you to go and have a look on it. It's got a great FAQ section which will answer so many questions that you might have. But I want to encourage you, maybe just one day, try fasting and maybe take the money that you would have spent on food that day, do it as a family and give it to the food bank. Give it to the lighthouse. There's loads of amazing charities around and just give the money to stand in solidarity with the poor, to stand and say a big yes to Jesus and a no to everything else, to stand and disarm the principalities and the powers that say that self-love is the best kind of love and to say, no, I have discovered a love that is so much greater than self-love. And for a season, I will choose like David, like Paul, like Daniel, like Esther, like Anna, like these people to say no to myself, to say a bigger yes to God. It doesn't matter who comes knocking on the door. My yes is to Jesus and a no to everything else. And finally, we remember that all of these things, they compound. Fasting isn't some cosmic vending machine where you do it for one day and you pull the lever and then suddenly the answer that you want comes out. The imagery that the Bible uses of holiness is so often of an athlete. 
You don't just decide one day to go to the gym for 10 hours and you come out looking, you know, like Bill Cusack. <laughs> He'll like that. Are you in here, Bill? It's the gym. It's through discipline. Once a week, twice a week, you go and you just keep on going and you keep on going. And then you look back and you don't know when it happened, but somewhere along the way, you got fitter. There isn't a moment. You don't go one home one day and you're like, it's now. But gradually what you find is that over time and through discipline, you've stepped into something. And the same is with fasting. If you can learn to develop this practice once a week, twice a week, week on week, what you'll find is that somewhere something changed. I'm going to pray. Maybe we could get the the band back up. Why don't we jump to our feet? This isn't the type of talk where you come to the front, but maybe this is the type of talk where if you felt challenged as we approach this Lent series, maybe you could just make a decision with God. What is he calling you to do? Is it food? Is it maybe something else? Is it to just, you know, you're feeling a bit overwhelmed by it? Maybe it's just one day in Lent. Maybe it's just one meal. Start small. You're more likely to keep going if you just start small. But maybe this week you could just try it, see what happens. And so I'm going to pray, then the band is going to lead us. Lord Jesus, God, we see your example in the wilderness. We thank you that you showed us what it was to stare the devil square in the face to defy all of his tricks and tests, to show that there is a life source available to us that is so much greater than food, that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And I thank you, Lord, that you're always talking, that you're always with us, that you're always communicating to us. Lord Jesus, we hear Pastor Agu's challenge. What would happen if the church in the West really began to fast? really began to say, God, that you are greater than everything. You're greater than our appetites. You're greater than our desires. You're greater than our afflictions. Lord Jesus, that we want you above everything else. And so Spirit, right now, I thank you that you care about everyone's individual journey here. I just ask that you begin to speak to each person. What are you uniquely inviting them into in this Lent season? Lord, how might we each in our own personal walk disarm the principalities and powers that want to keep us in bondage and step into the freedom and full life that Jesus has extended to us? Amen.